the gospel according to St. Luke, beginning at the 15th chapter. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. He said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property coming to me. And so the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered up all of his possessions and took a journey to a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to eat the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here hungry. I will arise and I will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and came to his father. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired <clears throat> your servant Luke to record these words. That these words not only had power for Luke's day, but they have power today if we will but hear them. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open these words to us perhaps as never before that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Why are some people drawn to Jesus while others grumble. Why are some people drawn close to Jesus, to hear Jesus, while others grumble? Let me put it more personally. Why, up until 22 years ago of my life, did I grumble against Jesus? And then 22 years ago, had this profound shift where all of a sudden I started leaning close, being drawn to hear Jesus. It was a dramatic transformation 22 years ago. I was in just beginning, just before the senior year of high school. And it was such a profound transformation from my formerly pagan atheistic ways to suddenly becoming a Jesus follower that I had some friends who thought maybe this was a practical joke. And even some today who have mused on Facebook, is this the longest running practical joke? I mean, really, we knew you beforehand. You're a priest now? We knew you beforehand. Such a huge and excessive transition. I mean, I think of the poor nuns at school 
My, I was not uh, raised as a Christian, um, but my parents stuck me in Catholic school uh, because they thought maybe that would pound a few bits of morality into me. So the poor nuns, up until my senior year, I'd been kicked out of religion class almost every year. Yes, I'm confessing here. Almost every, every week, I was kicked out of religion class for aggressively arguing with the nuns as an atheist. Now in my senior year, I find myself kicked out of religion class just as often, but now because I'm arguing aggressively with the nuns as a new born-again Christian and as a Protestant. The nuns may say the change has not been that profound. But the reality is when we look at the life of Jesus, when we look at the person of Jesus, we see that people seem either drawn to him or they seem grumbling about him. I think the late, great John Stott put it best when he said of Jesus, he said, the only possible way to respond to Jesus is extremely. The only possible way to respond to Jesus is extremely. No one who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him and tried to give their whole lives to him. But nobody ever had a moderate reaction to him. So why? Why are some drawn and others grumble? Well, I think the answer is because some are able to hear the gospel. And what I mean by that, because the gospel, of course, has been sent out throughout the earth, but what I mean by that is some of us come to a place finally in our life when we're able to hear the gospel as gospel, to hear the good news as good news. That word gospel is a very specific, pregnant, wonderful word. As I've said before, as many of you know, it's the word euangelion. It means good news. It means more than good news. It means amazing news. It means great news. It means news beyond your wildest imagination. It means victory, good news of victory. Back in Jesus' day, uh, when there was a battle going on far, far away, and uh, uh, your, your sons and your fathers have been sent off to fight a battle, long before Facebook and Snapchat, you had no idea what the result of the battle was. So you would have to send a runner back to your village. And when the runner arrived at the village, if it had been good news, if it was a victory, they would run into the village, the village would see the runner, gather around, and the runner would say, euangelion. Victory, good news, we won, we live, we're going to survive. It was amazing news. And so when Jesus uses this word, when he comes on the scene and preaches his first sermon and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the euangelion, Re believe the good news, believe the gospel, this is what he's declaring. He's declaring that God has entered into the mess of our lives, the mess that we have made with our lives, and is willing to put our lives back together. That Jesus doesn't 
stay up aloof in heaven, but instead God comes right down and moves into the neighborhood and says, everything that you've messed up in your life, I am going to take that mess on myself. And as he bears our sins, as he sacrifices himself on the cross, he is declaring euangelion, all who would come. That's the victory. And that's why I say that some are drawn to Jesus. He's preaching this gospel, this euangelion. Some are drawn to it. Others grumble because only some of them are yet in a place where they're ready to hear the good news as good news. Because if you don't know that you need this, if you don't know your need, if you don't know your condition, if you're not self-aware of your lostness and your need, this good news won't really be good news. It'll be interesting news. It'll be passing news. But when we become aware of our need, then this becomes the greatest news we've ever heard. And what I love is that Jesus is absolutely committed to taking those who are grumbling about him and to make them, transform them into those who will lean in and draw close to him. Jesus is in the business of taking grumblers and making them those who are drawn near. Grumblers become disciples. And he does it here today and over the next couple weeks as we look at this parable in Luke chapter 15. He does it by telling us a parable. It's the parable of the prodigal father in Luke chapter 15 beginning at verse 11. Now you might think I've misnamed it. Isn't it called the parable of the prodigal son? Well, just wait. A couple weeks from now when we finish this series, you can answer the question, how should we title the parable, the prodigal son or the prodigal father. But the point being that this parable is Jesus' way of transforming the crowd around him. He's speaking to the grumblers. Sure, he's speaking to those who are drawn close to him already, but he's really speaking over them at the grumblers over there, saying, will you hear this? Will you hear this gospel? Will you stop grumbling and draw near? And the parable is meant to change them. You see, parables are not Jesus' version of little bedtime stories or illustrations. Oh, Jesus is going to tell us a story now. No, parables are about absolute provocative transformation. A parable is a type of theological speech that evokes a response. You can't listen to Jesus tell you a parable and at the end of it say, well, whatever. No, you've got to respond one way or another. You might accept it, you might reject it, you might run from it, but you're going to respond. And he's trying to get the grumblers to respond to the gospel. Now, this parable begins with a scandal. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 15, if you open up your Bibles or the Pew Bibles or your iPhone apps, Luke chapter 15 Although the parable of the prodigal son or the prodigal father begins at verse 11, it's preceded by two parables, the prodigal of the lost coin and then the parable of the lost sheep, but I'm, or the lost sheep and then the lost coin. But I'm not going to talk about those two parables today some other time. Now we're going to focus on the prodigal father. But it begins actually with a scandal at verse 1. 
So before you skip to verse 11, you've got to go back to verse 1 with me. And the scandal is this. The scandal is this. The tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and the scribes are offended. And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, for us to fully understand how huge this scandal is, we've got to realize what the Pharisees saw their job as in Jesus' day. The Pharisees believed that Israel was standing under oppression. They'd been kicked in the teeth by every world power for about six, seven hundred years. Every world power had come through, the most recent ones, the Romans. And they're saying to themselves, okay, we're supposed to be God's chosen people. Why are we in exile? Why are we suffering? And the answer, they would say, is because we rejected God. We've sinned. And that's absolutely the right answer. But the way that the Pharisees want to fix it is the wrong answer. By the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had appointed themselves as the sin police because the Pharisees believed that if every single male in Israel, sorry ladies, they were only counting the men back then, but if all the men in Israel could keep the law of Moses for just one day, sundown to sundown, then God's kingdom would come to bear on the world, which would mean the Messiah would come kick Caesar off the throne, reclaim Jerusalem, and bring in the golden age. If only every male in Israel could keep the law for 24 hours, God's kingdom would come. And so the Pharisees would run around finding all the people not keeping the law and would say, you're holding back the kingdom. You're holding back the kingdom. Stop it. You're not Jesus or the Messiah won't come because of you. That's what they were doing. And so can you imagine the horror for them when they see this Jewish rabbi, Jesus, who's meant to be teaching people about how to follow God's law, that he's sitting around welcoming sinners, tax collectors and sinners, and even worse, eating with them. See, we forget that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, for you to eat with someone is a big deal. I've said this before, but I'll keep saying it again. In our Western culture, we'll eat with anybody, it seems, but in the ancient Near East, if you ate with somebody, you're declaring something. You're saying, you're my brother, you're my sister, I am for you, we are, we are together, we are in this together. And so when Jesus is not just receiving sinners, but he's eating with them, the Pharisees are saying, what are you doing? We're trying to get them to stop sinning, and you're telling them it's, it's okay. Jesus is in fact saying, I know they're sinning. I'm going to get them to stop sinning. Your way is not going to work. But this is where the offense comes. And so in response to this scandal, Jesus tells a story. And the story at verse 11 is a story of two sons. Look at verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And again, it's important that we remember as we go through this over the next few weeks, there's not one son, there's two sons. And if you want to be more specific, there's not one lost son. There we will find out are two lost sons. One son is lost when he leaves home. The other son is fully lost while he remains at home. But there's two sons. And verse 12, the younger of them makes an unbelievable request, an unthinkable request. You could hear the gasps 
in the crowd when Jesus says this. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. I want my part of the inheritance. I mean, we're offended in the West when we hear that. I mean, we today would think that would kind of, I mean, what kind of kid is that? You know, you want, Dad, I want my inheritance now. I mean, we're offended by that. It doesn't seem appropriate. But in the ancient Near East, this is unbelievably offensive. You can't even begin to imagine the horror on Jesus' listeners when he says the son asks for his share of the property while his dad is still alive. And here's why. There's a wonderful theologian named Kenneth Bailey uh, who died just this last year, was promoted to glory just this last year. And Kenneth Bailey, um, that's a Canadian expression, by the way, um, promoted to glory. Um, not really. It's actually a Newfoundland expression, but, which is sort of Canadian, but we'll talk about that some other time. Um, <laughs> Kenneth Bailey was a theologian and a linguist who traveled throughout the Eastern world, going into different Eastern cultures, Middle Eastern cultures and other Eastern cultures, and he would learn the language of these communities. And when he learned the language, he would then go in and say, okay, let me tell you some Jesus parables. Because many of these communities have been culturally, virtually untouched in the last couple thousand years. So, I mean, he's thinking, okay, I want to really get at the root of what's behind these cultural stories. And so, we tell them the stories and say, what do they mean? And here's what Kenneth Bailey says about this request from the story of the prodigal father. Kenneth Bailey says, for over 15 years, I have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while his father is still living. And the answer has almost always been emphatically the same. This is what Bailey would say. So he'd gather around the village elders and Bailey would say, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did make such a request, what would happen? His father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means that he wants his father to die. In the ancient Near East culture, for a son to ask a living father for his inheritance is to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, you're getting in the way. You standing here breathing is in the way of what I really want. You mean nothing to me. I want what's coming when you die. So either die or give me what's coming to me. It can be not interpreted any other way in an ancient Near Eastern culture. This son is saying, I want nothing to do with you. I wish you were dead. What's amazing in verse 12 is the father grants the request. The father doesn't slap him on the side of the head and say, you wayward son, I'm taking away your iPhone and sending you to your room. The father lets him go because the father knows what any parent learns along the way, especially during the preteen and early teen years, is that process of learning to let 
go. You see, the relationship between the father and the son is clearly broken, but the father knows he can't force the love. He can't force him to love him. He can't force the relationship fixed. He ultimately has to say, I, I guess I got to let you go. I got to give you your freedom. The father lets the son go. But what's interesting is not only does the father let the son go, but verse 12 is also silent on the older brother. You see, it says that the older brother receives his half as well. Remember there are two sons? Verse 12 says, and he divided the inheritance between them. He divided the property between them. Not just the younger son got his bit, they both got their bits. There's nothing from the older brother here. The older brother is silent. The older brother could have done one of two things, at least. The older brother could have spoken in the last part of verse 12 and said, loudly, Father, I refuse to receive my half of the property. This is disgusting. I love you. I, I, that day that you die will be the worst day of my life, Father. You keep the property. Or the older brother in the latter half of verse 12 could have said, I got to be the reconciler here. There's clearly a big division between my younger brother and my father. Hey, younger brother, dad, there's something going on wrong here. We got to fix this. You need to go off on a fishing trip and, you know, get real with each other or something. But he doesn't. Instead, the older brother is absolutely silent. And all verse 12 says is that he divided his property between them. The older brother's just got his hand out quietly saying nothing. Remember I said there are not one but two lost sons in this parable? We'll find that more out in a couple weeks. But the father gives the property. And the son now in verse 13 quickly, hastily liquidates his assets and leaves. Verse 13 says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. So he's got property. And you got to ask, why is he getting out of town so fast? I would argue, and other scholars who are a lot smarter than me would argue the same, that it's not just his desire to get to the Lamborghini dealership fast. It's not just his desire to get to the slot machines quickly. What's drawing him quickly out of town is the mounting disgust in town from the fellow villagers as they hear this story of a son who asks his living father for his share of the property. Think of it this way. You've got to think ancient Near East. You can't think Craigslist. He's got property. He's got stuff. He needs to liquidate it. He can't just put it online and sell it. How do you sell property in the ancient Near East? You go to your fellow villagers. You go next door. And you say next door, hey, you want to buy my cows? And your next door neighbor says, your cows? You mean your father's cows? He says, no, 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 um, my cows. Your father died? Oh, no, no, dad's just alive. Uh, he just, I just asked for the cows now. You asked him, what? As he goes house to house, the story spreads as he sells his property. This son asks for the inheritance while his dad is still alive? Maybe we should go do to that boy what his dad should have done. Remember that for next week. 
And so he quickly gets out of town because his life may actually well be in danger. And he flees happily to the far country and squanders his property in reckless living. He's got no mind of the future. When he spent everything, a famine hits in verse 14. And he's in need. He feels the pinch. And so in verse 15, he goes and hires himself out to a citizen of the country. We don't know, maybe this is a former, you know, party buddy. You know, back in the good times, racing our Lamborghinis down the street together. But now, you know, I've fallen into hard times. Can you help me out here? Give me a job? Well, it's interesting because in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East, if you want to get rid of a hanger-on who's like, I don't really want to help you, but I, I don't really want to shame myself by saying no, is you give them a job that is so distasteful, they will just not take it on their own. And so it's not surprising that this citizen of this far country gives the Jewish boy the job of, fine, go feed the pigs. You see, if you read the Law of Moses, you know that pigs are one of those various animals that are not to be touched or eaten. They're unclean. You're not to have anything to do with them. I mean, this makes absolutely no sense to me as a Canadian because Canadian bacon, which, by the way, is the only real bacon, I mean, it's not beneath me. I think that breakfast is beneath me if it doesn't include bacon. Um, but this... Jewish boy, this son of Abraham, he is to now go and feed the pigs. And he's in such a desperate place, he goes and does it. He says yes to the unthinkable job. He goes, oh, I'll feed the pigs. I'm that desperate. Do you see how far he's come? And not only is he that bad, but he's not just feeding the pigs, he's actually beneath the pig. Because it says to us in verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Son of Abraham, unclean pig. Son of Abraham, unclean pig. He's starving, the pig is fed. He wants what's in the unclean beast's belly. Do you see how far this boy has fallen? Jesus has painted the worst possible personal hell that this boy can fall into. Thank God for verse 17. And when he came to himself, when he came to himself, when he took a sober look at himself, when he said, what am I doing? This is not going well. My way is wrecking my life. I've made a mess. And then he remembers his father. And he says, even hired servants in my father's house have more bread to spare, and I have nothing, I'm dying. And he decides in that moment, in that moment of truth, that moment of great need, he says, I need help. I've got to make this right. We don't know how long he was starving before this happened. I think human beings have an amazing ability to stay in a really bad place for a really long time before we come to ourselves. But he came to himself, and we're going to look at verses 18 and 19 in more detail next week, but he really, in this moment of repentance, or as I will argue next week, a partial repentance, full repentance is coming, he recognizes three parts. He says, I've sinned. I mean, he, he recognizes, I, I, I've, I've screwed up, I've messed up, I've done the wrong thing, and I'm guilty for it. He owns it. 
I've messed up my life. And he says, I no longer should be considered your son. I, I recognize that I have broken our relationship. There are consequences to my actions. This young man is finally realizing that there are consequences to his sin. The relationship is broken. And finally, make me a servant. Hire me as a servant. And maybe somehow over time I might be able to make this right. I can earn back enough as a servant to maybe fix this. I want to fix it. And we stop at this moment in the parable because at this moment, friends, this man can finally hear the gospel as gospel. This man who has come to himself has finally realized his need, his desperate need. He can finally hear the gospel as good news. Can you imagine Jesus walking by this man in the pig field? Jesus saying, hey, you want a meal? Come eat with me. I got some tax collectors and sinners over here. You're hungry, I can tell. And you know what? You really need a friend. Come here. Draw close. This man is ready to draw close to Jesus because he knows his need. He's ready to draw close to Jesus because he recognizes that he has wrecked his life. And friends, this is the story of humanity's rebellion. This is what we did right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. God made a good world and we said, I want my share. I want to do my thing. And sin entered and rebellion entered and guilt entered and blame entered. And the man blamed the woman. God said, I give you one rule and the man blamed the woman. And the woman blamed the snake, and the snake had no leg to stand on. <laughs> Bishop Charlie can tell you that it's funnier in Canada. <laughs> this rebellion is at the core of who we are. But friends, until we realize it, until we realize how much we've messed our lives up, by rejecting God, until we get to that place, our own personal hell, we're not going to be ready to hear the gospel. And I'll just say this to be clear, this is not about having to be in a pig field, absolutely impoverished, to be in personal hell. There are people who live in mansions who are living out their personal hell. Maybe some today sitting in this room, well, some of you know I know you know. You know the personal hell. You know that place when you came to it and realized, I can't do this on my own. I can't. There is a piece missing. I was talking to a parishioner between services, and he was telling me his story of sitting in a, in a, in a pub in New York, and he sat next to a psychologist in New York City, you know, who's just, you know, cared for the city. And he said to him, he said, you know, as a psychologist, is there a kind of a common thread you find in your, in your work as a psychologist in New York City? And he said, yeah, pretty much. Everyone who goes to my office is telling me in their own words this, that I feel like I came off the assembly line and I was pretty good, but there was a piece missing. Friends, until we get to that place and we realize there's a piece missing, 
And like I said, some of you have been there. You've already got there, and you know that the answer is Jesus. That as that peace is missing, Jesus comes in and says, I'll get in the muck with you. I'll fix this for you. I'm ready. And you say, yes. And you draw near. But some of you friends I know are sitting here today, and your wife or your husband may not know this, your coworkers may not know this, your friends at school may not know this, but you're at the end of your rope. You feel you're in a personal hell. It, there's a hole in me and nothing is filling it. And friend, if that's where you are today, Jesus has you exactly where he needs you to be because now you can hear the gospel as gospel. Now you can hear the story we're about to celebrate as we come to communion that says God so loved the world, loved messy, broken people that he gave his only begotten son to then all that would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. That God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet stuck in the pig fields, Jesus died for our sins. And if today you are in that place, and you feel yourself being drawn near to Jesus to hear this gospel. I ask that even now in this moment you would pray with me. Pray with me now. You don't have to do it out loud. You can do it in the quiet of your heart. But Jesus hears. It's really simple. It's sorry, thank you, please. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for making a mess of my life. Thank you for inviting me into a new life. Thank you for taking all my mess on the cross for me. Please now, come into my life. Transform me, change me, make me yours. For I pray it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.